0: Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited.
1: Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is
0: provided by Poets Row. Hey, everyone, welcome to Education Suspended. My name is Jessica Pfeiffer. Glad to have you here. First and foremost, we are releasing this the day before my wife's birthday on March 1st. So happy birthday, Krista. Thanks for letting me do this. I know it takes up a lot of time. So, to everyone that listens, you should really be thanking my wife and not me. So I also want to follow up on our last episode, which was the first episode of season two. In the intro, I kept saying A-L-U as a school, and it's actually A-U-L. I wrote it right on my paper. I just said it wrong every single time. So apologies to the staff and the students of A-U-L. We've gotten such good feedback about that episode. So we're so grateful for your time. But I wanted to make sure that I clarified that before it got too late. Today, Steve and I sit down with Dr. Stuart Ablon. We are extremely grateful for his time. He's so busy right now, especially with what he focuses on. He's the founder and director of Think Kids in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's written a couple of really awesome books. One of my favorite is Changeable. He's also written Treating Explosive Kids, the Collaborative Problem Solving Approach and the School Discipline Fix. Steve and I have actually both heard Dr. Ablon as a keynote presenter at several conferences and he's so good. He teaches educators, parents, clinicians, any leader really out there, kind of a different approach. Understanding and addressing challenging behaviors, which is really what we're seeing right now in schools. That was the premise of our whole episode. What are our options? It seems as though we are falling back into a compliance based lens, which, you know, while we understand the science behind why we're vulnerable to do that, we really wanted to just hit pause and figure out what are the other options that we have. So we explore why is empathy so important? And Dr. Avalon, I appreciate, really just highlights that, you know, there's this normal trajectory of developmental progress that we're used to seeing in kids. And we haven't kept pace with that since COVID has hit. And so we're really seeing this large gap between the skills the students have when they show up to the classroom versus the expectations that are there. And so how do we balance the skills that they have with the expectations that we set before them? Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Dr. Stuart Avalon.
1: Hello. Hi there. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. You look ready to teach a class.
0: (laughs) Dr. Avalon, we're so excited to have you here. I have heard you speak several times, so I love what you bring to the field of education. Our premise today is to have a conversation about our system in regards to consequences. I think Steve and I are both getting a lot of feedback of it It feels like we're moving towards a lot of compliance. If you wouldn't mind kind of just starting off introducing yourself, saying hi to everybody, what you do, how you got there, and then connecting it to your own story of education if you feel so inclined.
1: Sounds great. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So I'm uh, Stuart Ablon. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm proud to direct a program we call Think Kids, which is in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. But we do work all over the world at this point. We teach a particular approach to understanding behavioral challenges and helping people with behavioral challenges. It's a pretty big departure. I'm sure we'll talk about this some from how people typically understand challenging behavior and, and what it leads to. We do a lot of work in schools, but we work in all kinds of different settings uh, across the world, really. And you, you had asked uh, you know, how I got into this work. Actually, both of my parents are mental health professionals. So uh, there was no shortage of interest in my family in what makes people tick, people's thinking, feelings, behavior. And I like to think I'm one of the rare offspring of two mental health professionals that so far has turned out halfway over. It's usually, you know, that's a a tall order if you've got a psychiatrist and a psychologist for a parent, look out. But I I like to think I've handled it all right. So no, kidding aside, you know, I've always been interested in psychology and I was actually trained psychoanalytically in psychodynamic work and found in the beginning of my training that the concepts really resonated. But particularly when I was working with families, parents were desperate for advice on how to handle their kids' behavior. It was the number one thing that kept coming up all the time. How do I handle? And if I talk to people in the schools, how do I handle this behavior? And so I found myself really wanting for practical advice that flowed nicely from an understanding, a complicated understanding of what was going on for these kids. And I had the good fortune in my early training at uh, Mass General Hospital at Harvard Medical School, where I've, I've been on the staff for a while now, of working with Dr. Ross Green at the time. He and I were collaborating, and he came from a sort of traditional behavioral background, and I came from a more psychoanalytic background. And neither of us was particularly satisfied with what that was bringing to the table in terms of how do you support these kids and families? And we're really looking for something else, something integrative, something that uh, reflected what we know works, reflected what we know about why folks struggle with their behavior in the first place. And eventually this led to this approach that we call collaborative problem solving. I think it's an approach that is uh, particularly important today when you know we've got kids, families, adults who are under a tremendous amount of stress. and uh, really needing for ways to better understand behavior and to intervene in you know compassionate, helpful ways that reflect you know practical sort of common sense, but also what we've learned from the neurosciences. Yeah, I bring... ask
2: about dinner conversations at the Ablon House because I, I was very curious. Kind of where did you develop sort of the alternative mindset? Right. Uh, you know, I think uh, not so much
1: explicitly, but more implicitly. And um, both of my parents were always sort of open minded and understanding when it came to uh, approaching people and curious and wanting to sort of understand people's perspectives. And, uh, and, you know, it started before that, too. My grandfather, who was a big impact um, on my life, he had all these wonderful sayings. One of his sayings is uh, you have your way. I have my way. There is no the way. Uh, And in some sense, that's what I do these days is I help people understand each other's perspectives and help people realize there's no one way to do something.
0: I remember when I first heard you speak, this was years ago. It always reminds me of you, speaking of sayings, you said, our kids will do well if they can. You're kind of known for that statement. And it, I think it rings true. And that's coming up for us a lot of, I love this, this notion of being curious. Where's the behavior coming from? And it just feels like right now, it's almost like the system or the teachers or those of us that are caring for these students, like our bandwidth to be curious.
1: Yes, it's greatly limited. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so we're seeing the negative ramifications of that.
1: You know, I think the bottom line is, I mean, you're referencing sort of the, the foundational philosophy behind our work, which is kids do well if they can. And it's simply meant to suggest if a kid could do well, they would do well. I mean, I've yet to meet a kid who prefers doing poorly. I think all kids want to do well. And if they're not doing well, we do want to be curious about what's getting their way so we can help. The problem is that the more frustrating somebody's behavior is, the harder it is to maintain that mindset. So if you've got kids who are really stressed, having a hard time managing their behavior, their dysregulation is contagious. So it's upping the ante for the adults around them. And the adults are stressed themselves. I mean, what our educators have had to contend with over the last couple of years, you know, is really rather severe. So as you say, their bandwidth is reduced. And when your bandwidth's reduced, you have a hard time controlling your own impulses, regulating your own emotions, and staying curious and, in Instead, what do you do? You fall back on reflexive ideas, and you also, to be honest, you also sort of reach for more power to try to regain some
0: control. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing out there these days. Can you go a little bit more into that? Because I 100% agree. And Steve, I saw you kind of nodding your head over there as well. We as the adults, and I say we because even though we're talking about this right now, I can think of an instant two weeks ago that I was with a student. And I felt my own self totally becoming dysregulated. And so here I was, like, I felt myself reaching for control. What is it about that? Why do we have that tendency to do that? And how does it make us feel better in that moment?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think being faced with challenging behavior, it's frustrating, period. But it often also makes us feel disrespected. It makes us at times feel unsafe. And it makes us feel ineffective. So if you're a teacher and a kid or multiple kids, your classroom's feeling out of control, you're not feeling particularly successful. And, you know, again, you might be also feeling disrespected, unsafe, et cetera. And that angers us and we start responding not from the smart part of our brain. Not from the part of our brain that has learned all about trauma-sensitive principles and teaching and things like that. You know, we're responding much deeper down in the brain. And if we're being honest, we're pissed and we want control back. And when we're pissed and we want control back, we grab for power. And what does power look like when there is a power differential? And there is a power differential between adults and kids, educators and students. We reach for that power and we use things like consequences, punitive interventions to try to regain some control. Now that's ironic, of course, because the most ugly incidents that happen in our schools are typically when somebody responds to dysregulation by reaching for power, which just sort of
2: ups the ante. As a teacher myself, and I I taught a lot of years in in middle school, people will say, when my room is going to hell, it's falling apart. And people say, I don't have time to negotiate or carry on a certain type of conversation or other things I know that are a really important part of your work. You know, sometimes I say, well, compliance isn't great but it might be better than chaos. What, What do we say in those situations where people are just feeling helpless right now? One of the things that I teach folks is that you know this
1: whole thing rests on regulation it rests on regulating the kids and you know a good friend and colleague of mine who you both know well Dr Bruce Perry he says all the time that a dysregulated adult can't regulate a dysregulated kid right so it starts with regulating the adult and you know i've spent a lot of time working with dysregulated kids and trying to learn what regulates them and it turns out what regulates kids is the same thing that regulates adults and one of the most important things is empathy Empathy is one of the most potent, powerful regulators we have. One of the best ways to regulate another human. I mean, being listened to, feeling understood is incredibly common, incredibly regulated. So when I'm working with adults who understandably feel dysregulated, the first thing I want to do is help regulate them. And I run right for empathy, trying to understand what they're going through, their predicaments before trying to give them any advice, for instance. So, you know, when I get called in to work with a school team, the last thing I do is come in with sort of a whole bunch of ideas about you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. No, the first thing I try to do is listen, tell me what's going on, help me understand, ask a lot of questions and be curious to try to figure out what's going on together with them. And that being heard and listened to is regulating. that's the first step just seems to
2: lead so well into what I would like to hear repeated by Stuart I've heard it myself but I think it's so important is the types of conversations you talk about
1: Sure. So, you know, I think what you're referring to is we spend a lot of time trying to help people figure out the best ways to collaborate with others. And it's often, yes, adults collaborating with kids, but you're absolutely right. It's adults collaborating with adults. I often say the most important collaborative problem solving that goes on in a school building is often with no kid around. It's the adults collaborating with one another. And the heart of our approach, what we call collaborative problem solving, is a structured process to problem solving that, no surprise, is why you thought of it, starts with empathy it's the first ingredient is empathy. And it's interesting because when you, you describe that to people, people usually say, oh, okay, I got it. I know what that looks like. But oftentimes people don't because they think empathy is sort of sympathy or you know, saying something like, hey, I'm really sorry to hear that, or that must be really frustrating, which that's what I, I call drive by empathy. Just dropping a little, hey, I'm sorry to hear that. That's not the kind of empathy that, that is regulating. As I mentioned before, being listened to is regulating. So the first thing we teach people in the first ingredient, the empathy ingredient is to listen really hard. And that's it's easier said than done. So we like to sort of give people you know, scripts for how to do that, how to start the conversation, what we call sort of the tools you use to try to drill down and understand somebody else's perspective and point of view. And we teach people how to do that and say to them, don't do anything else. Until you feel like you sufficiently understand the other person's concern or perspective or point of view about whatever problem you're trying to solve, that's what empathy looks like. But it's a complicated process of being a detective, asking a bunch of questions, using educated guessing if need be, reflecting back what you hear from somebody, which is, again, incredibly regulated, and reassuring them that you really want to understand. You know, when I, when I have these conversations, some of the sort of things that come out of my mouth or a lot are things like, hey, I just want to understand. Or you're not in trouble. I know there's got to be a good reason that, you know, sort of fill in the blank with whatever's going on. And I'm just curious. I just want to understand what those things are. In the words of Ted Lasso, be curious, not judgmental.
0: That's the bottom line. And that's a wrap. We should just end our episode we there. because Ted Lasso, so
1: you, you got once it.
0: Once you quote Ted Lasso, the session ends. The,
1: the funny thing about that quote, sorry, was no, go for he it. was, he, in the show, he was quoting Walt Whitman. But one of the quirky things about the show is if you look into things, you'll find even funnier things, which is Walt Whitman never said that. But that's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll attribute it to uh, to Ted Lasso. Um, you've probably heard the common uh, refrain, be curious, not furious, which is a nice spin on that. Be curious, not furious. But I, I also like be curious, not not judgmental. Try to suspend judgment. And and I don't know about you all, but I continually have experiences in my own personal life where I hear about something or somebody does something, and I find myself jumping to a conclusion that's judgmental. And I oftentimes say to myself, okay, well, uh, let me stop and let me not, you know, uh, react yet, because who knows what's going on? And lo and behold, sure enough, I understand that something else was going on for that person that completely explains why they were acting that way. And I'm so glad I didn't react immediately because I would have come off as a jerk because I was being judgmental and didn't have all the information.
0: The story of my life. Steve's like, yes. So this notion of empathy. Here's where I'm kind of going with it. How do we balance? Let's just, let's just focus on the last two years that we've had in, in in public education in particular, ton of stress, a lot of expectations on educators. The system really hasn't shifted too much. For example, I'm in a school right now as we record this and the kids are doing testing for someone like me. And yeah. how did we get here? And this is more systems. Cause for me, I then always find myself, well, how do I have empathy when I know that like our marginalized kids are really impacted by These compliant based techniques, right? These systems that that are suspending that are having more of this black and white. So how do we how do we balance that?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I I think we better learn from these last couple of years, you know, this has been a massive educational experiment that we didn't want. It wasn't invited, but it happened. And we should be learning a lot. You know, we've known some of these things. I mean, you talk about these marginalized students, the most marginalized students have been you know, suffering from that so-called school to prison pipeline that's existed for the longest time. It's just now there's an even brighter light shining on it because honestly, in the last couple of years, kids haven't, they have not made the developmental progress at school that they had pre-pandemic. They just haven't. We need to be clear about that. So as the years march ahead and expectations continue to rise, kids' development have not kept pace with those expectations. And that's where challenging behavior happens. It's in that gap between the expectations that keep going up and the skills The development that hasn't kept pace. Now, that's for all kids, honestly, these days. And it's why you're seeing so much challenging behavior in schools. Kids who were previously looked pretty good and didn't behave poorly are really struggling now. But it's the kids who there was already a gap to begin with. And largely, who are those kids? Kids who've been exposed to chronic stress and trauma in their lives that has delayed their development. There was already a gap. And now expectations have marched along and their progress has been set back even worse. And then, you know, I think we need to be clear also, on top of that, you have many of these kids suffering not just from misinformed interventions, but also from biases, implicit biases that lead to students of color receiving far more punitive discipline, for instance. And so these things get layered on top and and make what's already a big problem even worse. And We need to learn from what we've seen or else it's going to be disastrous outcomes for these kids. And we're going to see them, honestly, for years and decades to come at this point. Are you finding even more interest in your work because of the pandemic, or has it changed anything? I think there is more interest, Steve, but the challenge is that, and I don't have to tell you all this, you know, schools have just been scrambling to sort of handle the day-to-day best as they can and keep the doors open, so the bandwidth for the leaders as well as for teachers to take on new approaches, because there's no quick fix, right? There are a lot of great approaches out there that are alternatives to traditional, archaic, punitive school discipline, but they take time to learn and practice and what I call spray and pray training doesn't work. Having somebody come into the next PD day and throw a bunch of great ideas at you, even if they're wonderful and you love the ideas, it's not going to stick. It's just not how our brains learn, especially adult brains. (laughs) You, You know, you need repetition and practice and coaching. So there's no quick fix. So there's more interest, but less bandwidth for
0: people to be able to take it on, sadly. It's ironic. Knowing that the bandwidth is so limited and for any maybe administrator listening to this, um, let alone the teachers, yeah. well, and I couldn't agree more. I also want to say when you just said the next five plus years of school, like if we don't kind of get back on track, we're going to have a really impacted system. And And Grainer and I talk about that all the time, our ultimate fear of how do we come out of this? How do yeah. we come out of this? And so I don't know, like, what would you say to admin? What would you say? Yeah. Well,
1: so the advice I've been giving, it's not easy advice, because again, there's no quick, easy fix here. But to oversimplify for a moment, and you know, if listeners could see me now, you'd see me talking with my hands, because what I'd be saying to people is this is all about expectations and skill level. And when expectations exceed skill level, that's where you see challenging behavior. And what's happened is expectations have continued to rise. And they have outpaced skill development, creating this gap. So to oversimplify, what I say to folks is we've only got two levers to pull there, okay? We can either decrease expectations or and or build skills. Those are the only two levers we have because we've got to get those two to sync with one another. Now, anybody who studies child development, human brain development knows that you can't speed up development more than it will go. If whenever anybody tries to use some intervention to force development to go quicker, it always backfires. So, can you build skills? Can you use alternative approaches to school discipline, like the one we teach, like other SEL programs to build skills? Absolutely. But you're not going to make up 18 months of developmental lag in the next semester. It's, it's impossible. So, what's the only other thing we have to do is to decrease the expectations to meet the skill level. And, you know, if I had it my way and I could uh, wave a magic wand, you know what I would do? I would put every kid back in school where school was when the pandemic started and start over. I'd have a do over because I don't think developmental progress has been made and we need more time and opportunity to make that developmental progress. And we can't just keep ignoring the reality and march on. Now, when I say that, I just want to be very clear how unbelievably unrealistic that is. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. But what that means is that administrators can, within what's possible, make sure that there's permission for their educators to have expectations meet kids where they're at, as opposed to where we wish they would have been by now.
0: Absolutely. Essentially what you're saying is have developmentally relevant expectations. That's exactly what you're saying. And sometimes that can be heard when you say, well, lower the expectations, that kind of has like a negative connotation. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it, but it's only, it's only, it's only negative um, if you, you think that that means that you are going to impede progress, but that's actually going yes. to help progress yeah, because right. having expectations overshoot somebody's skill level doesn't go well. All it leads is to yeah. ugliness and dysregulation and sets us back even further. But you're absolutely right that the more palatable way of talking about this is to talk about them as developmentally appropriate or matched to where students are at.
0: But no, I agree, because I'll say, We need to adjust our expectations, but sometimes that goes off like a fart in church because it's like, oh, well, we want them to get away with something. We're trying to excuse behavior, and that's not at all what we're trying to do. I really liked how you said that. I really liked how you said that. And we're seeing it with our adults. Obviously, right now, we're focusing a lot on our kids, but we saw that when the pandemic hit and we had to pivot within weeks. I mean, in our district, it was two weeks to get online. And in an instant, you saw developmental expectations where teachers had been for years not match what they were being asked yeah. to do.
1: And look, I mean, it's been during this massive period of experimentation, I and mean, that's the other thing. You know, we yeah. remote school, who would have ever thought of that? right and yeah, that's another thing we need to learn from right there, there's some real yeah. lessons to be learned there in terms of things that can be helpful and things that cannot be helpful i worry that we're so overwhelmed we're just going to go back to sort of what we where we were before and i want to be clear you know we talked about this philosophy of kids do well if they can students do well if they can let's be clear that applies to us adults too Okay. So teachers do well if they can. Principals do well if they can. Superintendents do well if they can. Everybody's trying their best they can to handle what's being thrown at them with the skills they have to handle it. It's not for lack of effort. My goodness. The effort that's gone on the last few years has been just enormous. Everybody's doing the best they can. Really challenging times.
0: I always tell Krista, my wife, when we're going into Ikea, I'm going to do the best that I can. So that's what's coming up for me right now. I'm going to make her listen to this episode. Like, this is how I feel in Ikea, okay? You know, kid- kidding
1: aside, I think a lot of this also goes back to something that existed long before the pandemic, which is we've always misunderstood challenging behavior. We thought that when people behave poorly, that they're doing so on purpose, that this is under their control and they're being manipulative in some way or just not trying hard enough. You know, with kids in schools, we develop elaborate plans based on the notion that kids are trying to get or get out of stuff with their behavior. And that just doesn't reflect a half a century of research and what it's shown us because behavior is determined by skill. Not will, okay, and we need to constantly remember that, and now, more than ever, we need to remember that. Behavior is determined by skill, not will, which of course means that interventions aimed at trying to motivate increase will are actually not going to be effective because they're barking up the wrong clinical tree, if you will.
2: That's the saying of his in the collaborative problem solving community that I steal all the time, and I say to not just teachers but parents are they learning anything? I yeah, think that's yeah. the, key, the key motivation here is, are we learning anything? That has been really a a productive thought for me to carry and to share. Yeah, well, it's a
1: helpful reminder to people. I mean, it's and it encourages empathy because it helps people realize that it's this is not about a lack of effort on anybody's part. This is about skill, not will. And it's about what skills we're able to bring to bear in the moment, because, you know, you can have great skills necessary to handle things. But if you're too dysregulated in the moment, those skills are nowhere to be found.
0: I wanna go down that rabbit hole that you were saying a little bit before about, I mean, essentially sometimes we like throw the kitchen sink at these problems, trying to, to, to shift the behavior, but we're missing the boat. It goes back to they don't have the skill. And I feel as though sometimes with some of the most challenging behaviors that we get, we only think of extrinsic rewards, extrinsic, extrinsic. If I give them a dollar, if I give them a point, if I move their clip, if I move their level. And anyone that's met me knows that I just have an allergic reaction to the extrinsic because I'm like, we're, we're not doing it right. But can you go into that? Sure. What, yeah. what does the research say about why extrinsic rewards are not always
1: the way to go? Well, first of all, very basic. <laughs> you know, if this is about skill, not will focusing on a will is not going to be particularly effective. If that's not what's getting in somebody's way, working on that is not going to be particularly effective. But the other thing, you know, I like to remind people of is it's actually not just that they're not effective, it's the side effects they cause. I mean, it would it, I, I actually wouldn't worry as much if they just didn't work, but they actually often make things worse and particularly for the most at-risk kids. And what I mean by making things worse is, uh, you know, again, tons of research, literally thousands of studies that has shown beyond the shadow of a doubt that the more you use tangible reinforcer to try to motivate somebody to do something, the more it actually eats away at that person's internal or intrinsic drive to achieve the goal. So it's sort of ironic because, you know, in education as a teacher, uh, you know, the thing you're trying to foster the most is a kid's intrinsic drive to learn. Right. But the more we rely on extrinsic, tangible reinforcers, we actually eat away at that intrinsic drive. And the other side effect that we cause though is when you use a lot of extrinsic reinforcers you're sending a kid the not so subtle message that you don't think they're trying hard enough or or else why would you know these smart adults be trying to motivate you to behave better unless you know they were sure that you just weren't trying hard enough and that's a very dangerous lesson to teach hmm. a kid about themselves you know I'll quote my grandfather again here who uh, one of my favorite sayings of his was he used to say if you give a dog a name eventually they'll answer to it. If you give a dog a name, eventually they'll answer to it. And what that means with these kids is if you treat these kids like they're lazy, unmotivated, don't care, aren't trying hard enough, et cetera, don't be surprised when over time, guess what? They start to look like and talk like and act like kids who are lazy, unmotivated and don't care and aren't trying because we're teaching them that about themselves. And you know, I think there's a precedent here in education. I mean, I'm in my 50s. When I was in elementary school, if a kid struggled to read, you know, it was like a couple of years behind uh, their peers in terms of their reading. Sadly, people used to think that kid was either lazy or dumb. And, you know, you fast forward to today, thank goodness. If a kid's struggling to read, most educators are not thinking that kid's lazy or dumb. They're wondering, what are they having a hard time with? Could this be a learning disability? They're having a hard time decoding words. And they realize that that has nothing to do with the kid's intelligence some brilliant people, some of the most brilliant, innovative people out there have learning disability. You know, we, we've come a long way when it comes to understanding those kinds of challenges. We need to make that kind of a shift when it comes to understanding behavior, because we still assume the kids who are having a hard time regulating themselves, managing their behavior, aren't trying hard enough and use interventions to try to make them try hard. When the sad reality is those kids are actually trying harder than anybody else in the classroom because it doesn't come naturally to them. Again, just like kids who have a hard time reading. You know, you never use a sticker chart or a behavior contract for somebody who's having a hard time reading because you realize that kids are already working really hard, harder than anybody else. Kids who have, don't have a hard time reading, it comes easily to them. They don't work very hard. Just like kids who are very compliant in school, they're not working hard to be compliant. It comes easily to them because they're good at things like flexibility and frustration tolerance and problem solving. Kids who struggle with those skills, they're already working overtime. We don't wanna send them the message by relying on extrinsic reinforcers that we don't think they're trying hard enough. Because again, you give a dog a name, eventually they'll answer to it. That's a great saying. <laughs> yeah, he always used to tell me, it's like, you know, dogs don't come with names, but if you give a dog a name, eventually they'll answer to it.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, how you can see that on the positive side too, right? Absolutely.
1: Yes. And that's why, you know, I think one of the biggest interventions, the kids I work with, biggest intervention to start off is helping them see themselves accurately, which is why, you know, when I talk to kids like this who've had no end of sticker charts and all kinds of things and it hasn't changed their behaviors, frustrated the hell out of them, I ask them, why do they think they're having a hard time managing their behavior? And most of them have usually been indoctrinated to say things like they're not trying hard enough, they're looking for attention, things like this. And I tell them, I don't believe it. Yeah. I say, I don't, I say, I don't buy it. I think your life would, if it was that simple, you'd behave yourself because your life would be so much easier. And I don't buy that you like everybody being mad at you so that you can get a little bit of attention. This whole notion of negative attention is better than no attention. I don't buy that. No, I think most kids would prefer to be ignored than have everybody pissed at them. And so (laughs) what I help kids realize is, you know, it just means you've got some things you're working on. I bet you're trying really hard to control your behavior, but some things are hard for you. And everybody's working on something. And these just happen to be the kind of things that you're working on. But I don't buy that you're not working hard enough.
0: So if you were to look at a lot of the systems that you support right now, if Steve and I were to look at a lot of the systems that we support right now, I think the theme that's coming up is that we're shifting back to compliance. And I haven't looked this up, so don't quote me. But it seems like suspensions seem a little bit higher. So how do we balance that? So we have to keep the system safe, but compliant-based strategies don't work, right? What are what are right. alternatives? Well, how do we? Well, the
1: good the good news is we we know it works. You know, punitive discipline, the problem with punitive discipline, especially when you're talking about kids with trauma histories or exposed to chronic stress is that they make matters worse. When you respond to challenging behavior with punitive discipline, it adds stress and further gets in the way of development, which escalates behavior. And this is why it's sort of a chronic cycle. But to answer your question, you know, the the chronic stress is not going anywhere anytime soon. So there are plenty of kids who are struggling with a lot of skills and are going to be uh, exhibiting a lot of challenging behavior, but you don't have to respond with punitive of discipline. And the good news is years ago, when I started doing this work, teachers who are all ears, they'd say, well, just tell us what to do instead. And there weren't a ton of good alternatives. Now there are. And I'd sort of put them under the heading of what I would call relational forms of discipline. I think of collaborative problem solving, the approach we teach as a relational form of discipline. But it is, you know, it's not the only relational form of discipline. There are other ones as well. And you know, a good example and a fairly you know, popular example these days are restorative practices. Restorative practices are another example of relational forms of discipline. And the good news is, what has the research shown? When you respond to challenging behavior with relational discipline, you decrease stress on both educator and student. And not only do you not get in the way of skill development, it helps facilitate development. And of course, if you've got less stress and better skills, behavior reduces challenging behavior and anytime you have less challenging behavior and less stress, it's so much easier to continue doing relational discipline. So, you know, these things are out there, but again, I'll I'll point to the fact that spray and pray training of relational approaches to discipline or SEL approaches isn't going to get a lot of traction. We've got to commit to these things.
0: That's why I really like, and I remember when I was getting trained in the in the Think Kids, the amount of effort that you put in to that empathy, that relational component is paramount. Because it, even if your school does restorative practices, if that empathetic relational foundation is not there, I mean, restorative practices can be just as harmful as suspension. Well, that's right. Look, there's no magic set of techniques that, in
1: isolation, are going yeah. to work. It, it, it's a mindset. And then a set of processes, and it, I, I wouldn't even call them techniques, because you know techniques are something you do to someone. Uh, yeah. Relational yeah. forms of discipline are things you do with. Somewhat. It's a mindset. It's recognizing that students do well if they can, that this is about skill, not will, to have that empathy. And then it's a corresponding process. And I I want to be clear that, you know, when we teach collaborative problem solving to schools, we teach the mindset, but then there's a very clear assessment process. So you can do a functional analysis. There's a very clear behavior intervention planning process. And yes, they're a very clear set of interventions that you learn as well. But to your point, they're not going to be effective if the mindset
2: shift is not there. I want to ask both of you a question regarding the mindset shift. Is the key to that, is it the understanding of neurodevelopment that we're missing in school that could level this playing field a little bit? That's a question for both of you. Is that where we can find common ground? It seems like that's possible.
1: I mean, I would say absolutely. It's why I love working with schools who've received some training in fundamental concepts of neurodevelopment. It's why I always say to myself, this is going to be so much easier if a place has, for instance, heard of some of the basics of the neurosequential model of education. Uh, you know, then it's, they're already understanding the basics, that the mindset shift is already facilitated. So it's going to be a whole lot easier. And the only thing I would add, though, is, um, you know, the same things apply with adults as they do with kids, which is understanding neurodevelopment is going to help you have empathy for kids. It's going to help you know why you need to approach kids in a certain way, why you need to regulate kids before you're going to be able to sort of access the smart part of their brain. But the same is true with adults. Yeah. So coming in with a ton of great training and throwing at the adults, if they're very dysregulated, feel disrespected or exhausted, it's not going to be particularly effective. I learned this the hard way years ago when we did a big project with the school safety division of the New York City Police Department. They had uh, at the time I think over about 4500 agents and officers in the schools. They have over 5000 now in New York City alone, which would make by the way like the third largest police force in the US, just to <laughs> sort of put some scale to it. And we were called to work with them because they were getting assaulted at alarming rates and then arresting kids. So you know talk about the school to prison pipeline. And you know I came marching in there with my standard PowerPoint slide deck and teaching them all about these concepts of neurodevelopment and ready to fill their brains with collaborative problem-solving training. And they wouldn't have it. I mean, they actually thought that I was making excuses for these kids' behavior. And it was like mass dysregulation. And I did these trainings in groups of a thousand cops at a time. Terrible idea. You imagine a thousand <laughs> dysregulated cops at a time. It, it was ugly. And it wasn't until I realized, you know what, I to practice what I preach and I got to start with empathy for them. I got to hear what's going on for them. I've got to ask a lot of questions, reflect what I hear, reassure them that I'm really trying to understand what's going on for them. And it it can't be just a technique. I got to mean it. And once I did that, what you saw is regulation, -regulation. co-regulation. And when they were regulated, their brains opened up, their cortex is like opened up before my eyes. And then I could teach them about some of these concepts, but, uh, you know, nobody's going to learn great concepts in neurodevelopment if they're dysregulated to begin with.
0: Steve, your question was, was really spot on. I had been probably in the mental health field a little over eight years by the time I stumbled across learning about the brain, how it processes, how it develops. And I think for me, my biggest aha was the impact of stress. And I really appreciate that you're going into that, Dr. Avalon. If we don't understand and normalize that it impacts all of us and come from this place of empathy, we're not going to make progress anywhere. So that's been the most helpful piece for me is it's not just about the kid. Our discipline referrals are not going up right now because the kids have all lost their marbles. It's because the teachers and the system is just as dysregulated.
1: The most important thing we can do is better support our educators because well-regulated, less stressed teachers are going to be able to do all kinds of amazing things with kids. But it, it all starts there. We got to go through the adults. And it's, it's why people say to me all the time as a child and adolescent psychologist, they're like, oh, you work with kids, huh? And I, that's great. You spend all your time working with the kids. I'm like, well, I spend some time working with kids, but actually I spend most of my time working with the adults yeah. <laughs> who work with the kids because yeah. that's the way to do it
2: kind of where we landed. I just had a talk shared with me by my daughter and the young lady speaking on the talk said something I'd never forget. She said, I give you the gift of lower expectations. I have shared that with a lot of educators and saw the biggest smiles ever. And now I feel validated by Stuart that I can even have a nice little visual of how important it is to lower expectations. But I think that was part of that empathy piece of saying to them in this time, 2022, you get the gift of lower expectations. And as
1: Jessica said, we're lowering them to match where people are at developmentally. So they're yeah. developmentally appropriate and sensitive expectations. This resonates for teachers because teachers, they know, I mean, look, if you took a second grader who's doing wonderfully in second grade and put him in a ninth grade classroom, they're not going to do particularly well. And we know why that's the case. So, you know, teachers know this, uh, but it it takes supporting them from a systems wide perspective to be able to match those expectations. And I wish there was some easier way to go about it, but that is an absolutely crucial way for us to find ourselves out of the predicament that we're in.
0: Just connecting those dots, reminding us in the beginning of this episode. The adult's can be just as dysregulated as the kids. So one of the first things that we lose when we're stressed is the knowing. When we're calm, we're like, oh, I know where this behavior is coming from. because <laughs> so you're dysregulated. You lose your capacity to empathize, to connect with that. And that's the irony in all of this for me as well, is I have yet to meet an administrator, a teacher who has fallen back into compliance-based discipline, and that, that somehow actually makes them feel better. No, they end up feeling worse. It almost perpetuates their own dysregulation versus hitting pause and saying, no, this is not the answer. So that was definitely coming up when I was hearing you say all that. We don't feel good about it.
1: Yeah. one other thing I want to clarify, because it seems that a big theme of our conversation so far has been empathy. I I want to make sure to clarify that when I'm saying empathy, empathy doesn't mean you have to agree with somebody's perspective or point of view. Empathy, in fact, is not agreeing or disagreeing. Empathy is understanding. And that's what you're really trying to do when you empathize with somebody, is you're just trying to understand their perspective, their point of view, their concern, what's going on for them, what's hard for them. Trying to understand does not mean you have to agree with them, have had that shared experience. You're just trying to understand. And and the thing I tell people is, you know, it's almost magical that if you work really hard to understand somebody else's point of view, it's amazing how much more open they're going to be to try and understand your perspective or your point of view, you know, it's sort of the age old question of how do you get somebody to listen to you? The way you do that is you listen to them um, yeah, and yeah. listen, listen hard to them. And they'll be more likely to listen to you. So empathy is understanding. You don't have to agree. You got to work hard to understand.
0: In my head, I was thinking, <laughs> let's just produce this podcast for everybody. <laughs> Politics, <Yeah>. marriage, <laughs> raising children. It's, it fits everything. and fits thing. <laughs> <laughs> That time went really fast. I knew that was going to happen. We're so grateful that you gave us your time. My pleasure.
2: Yeah, Um, grateful. Thank
1: you for having me. Fun to talk with you both. Fun to connect with you.